So we're starting a new series this week. Uh, the series is we've called More Than a Story, and we're going to be spending the next five weeks working through the parables of Jesus. And so we're picking them out of the Gospels and, and working them through. And we've called it More Than a Story because I don't know about you, but I love a good story. I love a good story. I love hanging out with a good storyteller. And I'm sure you've got people in your life who you know, they are great at crafting a story. I, um, very early on in my career as a school teacher, one of the things you do as a school teacher going off to camps is spend a long time on buses. And the first time I went off on a camp, I sat next to one of the other teachers. Um, and before we had literally, we would have been three minutes away from the school, he was fast asleep. I kid you not, it was this, it was, I think he had small kids or something, but it was amazing, he'd fallen asleep. And I learned from that moment that there was a couple of people that I worked with that if they were on the bus, they were the people you sat next to. So I actually ended up with a top three um, people at work to spend a long trip with because they were incredible storytellers. They had had not just amazing things happen to them, but they were able to reflect on the things um, that had occurred in their lives that had um, shaped them and, and refer to them with wisdom and with insight. And I really love hearing those stories. I love hearing a good story. And you see, because there's something compelling about stories. I was doing some research this week and there was this report from a neuroscientist named Dr. Eric Hasseltine. And he quoted this research, which recently found um, by studying which parts of the brain light up um, when stories are presented to subjects, that we all have a narrative hub in our brain. It consists of a connected network of different parts of the cerebral cortex. The researchers found, um, and other neuroscientists have found, that the narrative hub of cortical systems is the part of the brain where we infer thoughts, feelings, and motivations of others from their actions and words. And so in other words, they said, when we see or hear a story, we project ourselves into the mind and the heart of the main character of that story, and we think and feel what we believe that character thinks and feels. And so our brains are actually wired in such a way that stories have power. Isn't it incredible what God has done in the way that he's intricately made us so that we are people who connect with stories. And because of that, it probably shouldn't surprise us that that narrative genre or that storytelling genre um, is a huge part of, biblical, of the biblical story. There are lots of um, books in the Bible which are other things, but there is narrative flowing through almost every single book within Scripture. You see, the Jewish leaders um, knew the power of a story, and they actually had this um, tradition of, of teaching where they would tell a story and they would follow it with a question. It became a very, very widely used practice. It was the way that they would teach. This was a um, oral kind of uh, society. They, they weren't writing things down. They didn't, weren't storing them in volumes of books like we would. They were storytelling people. And so the rabbis would tell a story and then follow it with a question. There's this incredible moment in the Old Testament, and, and um, we are going to get to the New Testament today, don't stress, but there's this incredible moment in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel where King David is on the throne, and most of us know um, what occurred. He, he got complacent. He was at home when he should have been out at battle leading um, his people, and he ended up falling into great sin. 
And he's, uh, he's there ruling, continuing on. Um, I, I imagine deep down that guilt um, was there somewhere, but he's continuing on like nothing's occurred. And there's this moment where God sends Nathan the prophet um, and Nathan comes and he tells him this story. He says, David, I have a problem. Uh, there are two guys living in this village, one that is very, very wealthy. He has lots of herds, lots of flocks. He's got great wealth. And then there is another man who has got one little lamb that he loves. Think of it like you think of your dog. Some, I've seen some of you with your dogs. You love those little things. And this is like this guy loves this little lamb. In fact, the scripture even says that he loved the lamb so much that it drank from his cup, it ate from his food, and it slept in his arms at night. Remember, I've seen some of you with your dogs, all right? I know that that is not unusual. This is a very, very realistic story. And so David continues that um, the, the, the man with great wealth, remember lots of herds, lots of flocks, has a visitor come, and instead of slaughtering one of his lambs, he takes the one lamb from the poor man, and he slaughters it, and he feeds it to his visitor. And so Nathan then follows this story with a question and says, you know, what, effectively, what should be done? And David is outraged. He's furious. He, he, I can just imagine him, I'm adding this in, but I can imagine him leaping from his chair, his face um, enraged, um, and he, he declares um, that that man, as surely as the Lord lives, that man, that wealthy man must die, and it must be paid back Tenfold, It must be paid back multiple times. And Nathan follows up with this comment and he says, David, that man is you. And all of a sudden this great king with great wisdom, with great power, with great wealth is broken and is shattered apart because the power of the story, he was able to position himself as that poor man who had everything taken from him. He was able to um, feel the rage and the emotion of the injustice of what have, had occurred. And Nathan declares and says, that is you. You've done the same, but you've done it to a human being, to someone who was made in the image of God. And he tells David that God had given you everything. And if you wanted more, he would have given you more. And yet you've taken what was not yours. And see, what split David open, what made him really consider, what made him, um, his defences fall, was the power of that story. You see, it shouldn't surprise us then when we get to the New Testament and, and Jesus is speaking that roughly a third of what Jesus said is stories. So roughly a third of Jesus' words are in stories. And we see it picked up, we use the word in church, Parables, don't we? And it's from this Greek word parabola. And parabola means to cast something alongside something else. So to cast something out and alongside to cast something else. You see, we see in the parables in the Gospels that Jesus is casting out something that the people know. He's telling a story that is about things that the people know. And alongside of it, he's casting out spiritual truths that they don't know. Things that are not temporal, things that are not physical, but truths of the kingdom of God, which are revolutionary for their minds. And he does it within this framework of casting out something that they know and casting alongside it something that they don't. 
And so this morning, we're going to look, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to pull some of these parables out of Scripture. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21. The words will be up on the screen if you don't have um, a Bible or a Bible app with you this morning. And we're going to look at this um, passage in Scripture that happens right at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. This is the last week. Um, of his, his ministry on earth before the crucifixion. And in Matthew 21, leading into what we're going to read this morning, um, Jesus, there's these two kind of big moments. There's this moment that we call the triumphal entry, where Jesus rides in um, and people cast their coats and, and are singing and shouting that he's the Messiah, this open proclamation that he is God's son that has been sent um, to, to save his people. And then after that, Jesus goes to the temple, and you probably all know it because you've studied it in um, children's church once upon a time, but he goes into the temple and he drives out the people who were selling in the temple courts, the people that were um, turning his house, that were ripping the people off and turning it into a den of thieves. And after this, the Jesus starts teaching and the children start declaring that he is the Messiah. They start calling him a son of David, which is this messianic proclamation that he is the son of God. And this obviously, as we know, the religious leaders did not like this. And so um, they, they start to ask Jesus kind of, whose authority are you here under? Who are you? And Jesus throws it back to them. And there's this exchange leading into what we're going to read where he says to them, Um, Under whose authority was John the Baptist? So John the Baptist who came before, under whose authority was he? And the religious leaders are stumped because they know that if they say, well, he was sent of God, he was a prophet sent from God, that Jesus can then turn it back on them and say, well, then why are you not listening to what he said? That one greater than he was coming. They also know that if they say that he wasn't, if John the Baptist wasn't sent from God, that the people would be in uproar because the people loved John the Baptist. They had believed mostly his message that he was sent of God. They considered him to have been a prophet. And so they're stumped and they say, say, we don't know. We don't know. And so then Jesus tells these two parables. He says, but what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? They replied, um, they replied the first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. That's pretty confronting. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him. Well, tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the great harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. We've lost the clicker. That's okay. 
We'll pick it up from here. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think? Remember, story, question. What do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realised he was telling a story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. And so here we find Jesus tells two stories, both about vineyards, both about sons. And he tells them to the religious leaders. And the first one is this parable where Jesus says there are two sons, the man he puts to his son, go and tend to the vineyard. And the first one says, no, I'm not going. But in the end, he goes. You might, some of you might have a child like that. Their first response is always no. But in the end, they go. And then the other son, Jesus says, says to the father, yes, I'll go and do it, but then doesn't go. And so the first son says, no, goes. The second son says, yes, and then doesn't go. And so Jesus t- tells them this And then he asked them this story, which of these two boys obeyed the father? And then he turns the tables back on them like Nathan did with David. And he says to them, you religious leaders are that second son. You religious leaders are that second son. You see the tax collectors and the prophets, they heard John the Baptist's message and they told him to get lost. They didn't adhere to it. They didn't take it into their spirits. They didn't accept it. But now when they've been confronted with Jesus standing in front of them, they have turned their hearts back to him and they have accepted him. And yet the religious leaders who accepted and said, yeah, sure, you're from God, have now not actually accepted the truth to which John the Baptist was speaking. They've rejected the Messiah who stands right in front of him, right in front of them. And it's blunt, isn't it? We see often in the, uh, earlier in his ministry, Jesus not being this blunt, but now he comes out. There's nothing hidden in these parables. He comes out and positions the people right in them. He says, you are that second son. And so he follows it up very, very quickly with this second parable. He follows straight on. You can imagine the rage and the anger of those religious leaders, but they don't have really a second to do anything about it because Jesus follows on with a second parable. And he tells of a landowner who who sets up this vineyard. He goes to great lengths. He builds the walls. He builds the pit. He plants the vines. He does everything to get it ready. And then he leases it. He leases his vineyard to these tenant farmers. This was often the way it worked, is that the landowner would, would make it, build it, get it ready, and then would bring in hired hands effectively to run it and to bring it to harvest. And the story and Jesus tells brings us to this point where the harvest is ready and he sends a servant to go and collect his portion of the crops. 
And instead, the servant is killed. And so um, the, the landowner sends more servants, you know, safety in numbers, a couple of the big guys. He sends them off and the same result. The tenant farmers kill them and don't give them uh, the share of the crops. And so the landowner says, surely they'll respect my son. Surely they'll respect him. And so he sends his son and they think, here's our opportunity. We'll take it all for ourselves. We'll kill his heir and it will become ours. And so the the tenant farmers, they kill the son. And Jesus poses the question, what do you think he'll do? What, What should the landowner do here? And you see, the religious leaders, they knew the right answer. They knew it because it was made sense. There's a sense of outrage. The master will come and he'll take back his vineyard. He'll treat the evil farmers, the evil tenants, just like they had treated his people and his son. And he will then take the vineyard from them and he will give it to people who will do the right thing, who will produce proper fruit. And then Jesus quotes to them this scripture. That passage that you would have seen is from Psalm 118. uh, And it says, The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, this messianic proclamation from the Psalms. This is the Lord's doing And it is wonderful to see. Remember, no hidden meaning here. He looks at the religious leaders and he tells them, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. The people who have been ordained to carry God's message, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and it will be given to a nation that will produce proper fruit. But you see, the religious leaders, they're connecting the dots as Jesus is going anyway, because Jesus is drawing this parallel to the nation of Israel. He's drawing this parallel to this nation of Israel who were like those tenant farmers who had been given everything. It's a story of their history since its inception to the day that was coming very soon when it would all be taken from them. Jesus is saying to them, I gave you everything you needed. I planted the vines that you would have what you needed. I built the wall to protect you. I built you a watchtower. Um, You were given promises of blessing. You were given influence. I gave you laws to keep you safe and you have rejected it. And then Jesus is saying, I sent the prophets to bring you back to obedience Just like the landowner sent his servants to bring them back to obedience, God is saying, and Jesus is saying to the people, I sent the prophets to bring you back and you despised them. You didn't listen to them. And now to draw you back, the son, the very son of God, like the son of the landowner is standing in front of you, bringing you back, begging you to come back to obedience, begging you to come back to relationship And instead, even as he is speaking, what are the religious leaders doing? They're plotting his death. Just like the tenant farmers are there in the vineyard plotting the death of the sun as he appears on the horizon so that they might take it for themselves. And so Jesus says to them, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. He's saying to the religious leaders, I am bringing people in to replace you. I'm going to give my blessing. I'm going to give my protection. I'm going to give my word, my law to people that are coming in to replace you and so that they might produce proper fruit. And as we read the passage, we ourselves should position ourselves in there. 
because those people are you and it's me. It's the church that, that reads the Bible, that is in relationship with Christ, that follows his word. Those are the people that have been brought in to replace the evil tenant farmers, the people that have been brought in. And so there is a simple message here. Like I said, sometimes the parables are difficult and they're hard to understand. And other times, like this one, Jesus says to the people, I don't want you guessing, here is exactly what I'm saying. And so there is a message here for us, isn't there? How do we make sure that we are those people, that nation that is producing proper fruit? Because there is a clear consequence for those who are not. Because Jesus has said that, hasn't he? But what is the way that we can? And I want to, as we close this morning, share two very simple but difficult things to live. There are simple things to hear. They are simple things for us as Christians or for those of us who have been in church for a while. They are simple things for us to accept, but they are very difficult to live out. And the first one is that we need to honour God by remembering that what we have comes from his blessing. We need to honour God by remembering what we have comes from his blessing. You see, the religious leaders who are the evil tenant farmers in this story that Jesus tells, they had forgotten that what they had, everything that they had had, the blessings they'd had as a nation, didn't come from their own strivings, but came from the blessing and the provision of God. And we look at that and we think it's outrageous. We've read the Old Testament. We can see God's hand at work. We can see the, the way that he gave his people everything, the way that he protected them. What is wrong with them? But I'd say to you today that this is one of the most significant challenges that many of us face because we live in a world that is completely material driven. It is so driven by the things that you have, the things that you can accumulate, and that is not just out there. We like to position ourselves as we're, we're outside of that. We're better than that. That's the secular world. But I tell you, those things have creeped well and truly into our own lives. It's creeped into my life, absolutely. You see, we are so surrounded by it that we become convinced that our success is driven from the things that we do, that what we have is a result of our striving, that it's a result of our talent, it's a result of our hard work, and we quickly forget that everything we have comes from the blessing of God. And we're just like them so many times, aren't we? There's this famous saying that when someone gets saved, the last thing to be converted is their wallet. It is... I would say, a struggle for all of us, isn't it? What is the one thing that you can most quickly upset people in church by talking about? Well, you can move the chairs. That upsets people first. They come in and they think, that's my spot. But secondly, you talk about money and people run for the doors. Now, we don't talk about money here very often, if ever. It is not something that we believe is should be... Um, a compulsion. We don't believe that we should be compelling you to give. That is God's duty. That's the Holy Spirit's work in your own lives to be people who are generous. And I'm not just talking about the offering. Okay. When we talk about giving, when we talk about sowing in, we're not just talking about the offering. We're talking about people whose lives are hallmarked with generosity. And that is in church, but it's more, it's out of church. It's to be people who are set apart because you are generous. Your very nature is to give, it's to serve, it's to sow into other people, it's to sow into the church. Uh, and, and I tell you that that is one thing that should be a hallmark of us as people. 
We should be out there and people who don't know God should be wondering about our rampant generosity, that we are people who love to give. We are people who love to care. And so I'd say to you this morning, the way that we can make sure we produce proper fruit is that we honour God by remembering that what we have comes from his blessing. And lastly, this morning, we, can, we should choose, we must choose to live in obedience to God. You see, both of those parables, they speak of obedience, don't they? The first one, the sons, the obedience of the sons. And the second one, the desire, the way that God desires obedience over the, from those tenant farmers. Choose obedience. You see, the hedge, the wall that was built around that vineyard was not to punish them, was not to restrict them, was not to um, keep them in, to stop the farmers running away. The wall that was built around that vineyard was built there to protect them. It was to keep them in freedom. And that is the same thing for us. You see, God has given us his word and his word is a guide on how we can live in obedience to him. Now, a few uh, last year, I think it was, we spent a time unpacking Galatians and talking about grace. And if it's something you struggle with, go back and watch that on YouTube because we firmly and fundamentally believe that we are people who by the grace of God have been saved, not our own works. But that grace should propel us into obedience. So it's not our works that make, get us into relationship with God or make us right with God. It's his grace. But his grace should compel us to live in obedience. You see, so many of us make comments like, I know God says, or I know God's word says, but there should never be a but. Because the but is often where we are trying to correct or realign God's word with our own thinking, what we want from him, what we want his word to say. And so how can we do it is there's two parables, two parables about vineyards, a very, very simple message from both of them. It's make a personal response because that response is yours. Make a personal response and then choose to honour God by remembering that what you have comes from him and then choose obedience. Choose to live in obedience from him. Be the nation, be the people who are producing proper fruit. Because in that there is liberty, there is freedom, and there is God's blessing. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, for the stories that are contained within it. We thank you that just as they spoke to the people who are hearing them come out of your mouth, Lord Jesus, that they still speak to us. Lord, that nothing in your word is there by accident and nothing in there that is irrelevant for us today. So Lord, we thank you that as we unpack these things, Lord, sometimes talking about vineyards and agriculture and farming and religious law that we don't know about, Lord, give us a heart to explore and examine. Give us a heart for your word that pulls it apart and unpacks it and considers it and then applies it. Lord, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers of it. Lord God, that as we hear your word, that it would fundamentally and radically change our lives. And so Lord, we pray that as we work through this series over the next four weeks, as we hear these parables unpacked and explored, Lord, let us hear them. Let them shape our thinking and let them change our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.